You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. David, welcome to The Big Trade series. This is a whole new topic for me, but I think it's very relevant considering everything that's happening in the world. Why don't you introduce the audience about yourself? Well, my name is David Gallup, and Peter, thank you so much for inviting me to participate in The Big Trade. This is a wonderful show for the global public to hear more about financial issues and economics in both a local and a global way. So I'm so glad to be able to participate. I am a human rights attorney, and I head an organization called World Service Authority, which has its headquarters in Washington, D.C. I've been with the organization about 25 years now. Can you tell us what is the world government of world citizens uh, prior to discussing about what the company is or the organization is? Sure, sure. Well, World Service Authority is the administrative branch of a government called the World Government of World Citizens, or more recently, we've been just dubbing it the World Citizen Government, which is a government that was founded back in 1953 by a man named Gary Davis, who had renounced his U.S. citizenship back in 1948. And he tried to travel around the world with no documents, simply as a world citizen, but he found that he kept getting arrested just because he had no documents. So he said, well, to himself, what can I do to change this situation, to to protect myself and my rights? And he said, well, citizens... uh, in the world who are within nations generally have a government that will protect them. But as a stateless person, he did not. So he said, well, I need to do something that will help me. Why don't I create a government and then documentation that represents me? And that's what he did between 1953 and 54 was create this world citizen government and then the World Service Authority. But it wasn't just out of thin air. Back in 1949 and 1950, he had established a registry in Paris that registered almost a million people uh, as world citizens. Uh, who were issued World Citizen Identification Cards. And that that actually is a process that World Service Authority continues to today. Excellent. How does this World Citizens utilize the UN's Human Rights Declaration? You might say that the Declaration of Human Rights, which just celebrated its uh, 68th anniversary just a few days ago, is our Constitution. Uh, And I know in other shows you've talked about natural law. And you yes. might say that the universal, yes, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is uh, very close to uh, a, a perfect, uh, well, not completely perfect, but pretty close to perfect elaboration of those universal moral principles that we as one human family should be living by. I mean, I know that you've talked about uh, natural law, meaning more on the lines of you should do uh, no harm mm-hmm. and you should make sure that no harm is done to others and uh, keep your word. You've also talked about it uh, in a, you know, a more economic uh, way when you mentioned property. Uh, I wouldn't go towards the property viewpoint when we talk about natural law. I would keep it with those two, two or three principles of do no harm, make sure no harm is done to others uh, if you can, and uh, keep to your word. Right. What is the validity, though, if you're going to use the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Uh, I think, is it is it an elective option for each state if they choose to honor that or not? 
Well, speaking legally, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is simply a declaration. It is not a binding treaty, mm -hmm. but there are international human rights uh, experts and lawyers who would say that parts, of, if not all, of the declaration has come into customary international law, which means that many governments do, on a day-to-day -day basis, if not exactly just try to abide by, but actually do abide by the rights listed in the Declaration. So it, it has, once again, sort of like uh, these universal principles or natural law, it has, you might say, a, a basis in what ethically we would want to have our society look like if it were a perfect society. Of course, it's, it's not a perfect society, and this is why I would say we do need law to help govern ourselves uh, without some discussion uh, that we have in a excuse me, in a participatory or democratic way about how we're going to run our lives, well, that would be anarchy, which is, in a sense, sort of what we have right now between the nation states is, is anarchy. And there's, so there's not a problem with the nation state system per se, but there is a problem with the fact that there is anar anarchy between them. So I look at the Universal Declaration as one initial tool to help us to remove that anarchy and, and put law, rules of law, or the rule of world law, in place. So is it as simple as that, David, that if you wanted to create a state, you kind of can just register such through the form of a organization? You mean creating a nation state? The entity that you've created, basically, which is okay. sort of a government, isn't it? A government, basically, right? No, it is. Right? It is. We, act as a, we act as a government, you might say, in microcosm, not right. yet fully in macrocosm. Uh, and that's because we can provide some amount of services to the world citizenry out in the world, such as the world passport or the world ID card or for refugees, the world political asylum card. We even have a legal department that backs up the validity of our documents. But there's millions of people that we cannot get to on a day-to-day -day basis just really because of lack of sufficient funding to do all the projects that we have set up but are not fully functioning at this point. Are there other steps that you can take to develop this into a more established microstate? Well, we've been registering people, as I said, uh, unofficially, you might say, between 1949 and 1951 or two through the registry and then starting in 1954 at World Service Authority. On a day-by-day -day basis, you might say, we're planting the seeds for the fully function functioning uh, macrocosmic world governmental system that we would like. And a classic uh, um, example of, of us pushing this idea, this or this world citizenship ideology, you might say, forward, is the idea of creating a world court of human rights. And I'm working with uh, attorneys uh, around the world, uh, with legal advocates and some justices of some courts to create a, actually a world court of human rights that does not yet exist beyond the International Court of Justice, which is only for nation states, and the International Criminal Court, which is only to deal with war crimes or genocide. But we do need a human rights court because right now where you're located in Asia, that's about 60% of the world's population. And there's not even a regional human rights system there. So if we can establish, you might say, in a, if you're looking at government as a tripartite system, is at least that's what we have uh, here in the United States, uh, with an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial, judicial branch, well, the judicial branch, the, this World Court of Human Rights, would be, the, you might say, the, the first big step to a fully functioning global governmental system. Interesting. And why, why should people consider becoming a world citizen? 
I mean, isn't that already (laughs) inherent? They are world citizens. How does this accentuate that? Sure. Well, Gary Davis would always say to people, look, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, you are already a world citizen. And of course, I look at it from the legal side standpoint of it, and that is most citizenship is based on jus soli or jus sanguinis, meaning the uh, right of the land and the right of the blood. And we would say we're already, like you just said, uh, Peter, we're already world citizens because we are born on planet Earth of human parents. We're all biologically human. And because we, we really sort of to be able to survive, we have to interact with one another in a communal framework. That's what makes us the citizens. And because our communal framework now is global, that's what makes us automatically world citizens by birth and in fact. But when you register through World Service Authority, what you're doing is taking that, you might say, symbolic or by birth status and legally, officially and politically claiming it. Let me just state one other point here about this before we move on, and that is when you register as a world citizen, you do not give up any lower level allegiance. In fact, the point of world citizenship is to help us to celebrate those lower level allegiances and classifications that we've either come into just by birth or that we've chosen, uh, and we want to celebrate them rather than fight over them. And that's, that's why world citizenship is adding, you might say, a higher coherence to any other status or identity that we might have. So th- does this coincide with the fact that humanity itself has rights? Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, the, 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 in the, when the International Criminal Court came into being and, and uh, focused on the idea of a crime against humanity, sort of like what the Nuremberg Tribunal had done, mm-hmm. that makes, you might say, humanity legal. If you can have a crime against it, and that would be, you know, the, the main, the, most massive crime against humanity would be, for example, a, a, like a nuclear holocaust, uh, total global destruction where you've actually, you could say, killed humanity. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to, have to happen, obviously, through nuclear holocaust. It could be through environmental destruction where we have uh, so much uh, sea levels that are rising so much that all the nation states that we live in are underwater. I mean, that, that, that we're coming to uh, sort of that kind of frightening conclusion. And so it's important that we get our act together, I would say, and, and really start governing our world beyond the way we've, we've tried to do it so far. So one of the fascinating things that you issue out is basically a world passport. In regards to the passports, what, what, what kind of message are we trying to convey here? Are we discussing more about the overall freedoms of travel, or are we able to utilize this once we reach the immigration services in a particular country we're entering in? Well, the world passport, I would say both, actually. The world passport affirms everyone's innate, that is born with, and unalienable, meaning you can't give it up, right to freedom of travel. And that right has also been reaffirmed in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, in Article 13, and Article 12 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is a binding treaty on the majority of countries in the world because they've all almost all signed it. So there, it has a uh, its basis in this fundamental right, but it's also not only symbolic and based upon rights, but it is a practical tool in that over 185 countries, almost 95% of all the world's countries have placed either a visa, entry, or exit stamp in the world passport, at least on one occasion, but for the majority of countries on many, many occasions. Of course, it's, it's best recognized in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean, 
Eastern Europe and the Middle East. In other regions of the world, usually the, the, the countries that are the most uh, wealthy countries, you might say, that's where it's probably the most difficult because those are the countries that have the most restrictions against the right to freedom of travel, even though those same countries have agreed to respect it. Do you have any kind of barometer, David, of how many active passports there are? Yes. So since 1954, we've cl uh, issued close to 750,000 world passports and close to between four and five million documents when you add the world ID card or the world birth certificate or the world marriage certificate, all the other documents that World Service Authority issues. Mm -hmm. but, but in terms of uh, travel, I mean, do you have any idea when people are utilizing their passports, obtaining visas with their passports? I, I don't know if you quantify that to any extent, like the, as far as in yeah, the year 2016 it, yeah. or the, say the last two or three years are concerned. Sure. Well, it, statistically, it's very difficult because it's, uh, although with the passport, there are actual stamps that people get, mm -hmm. it still can be either anecdotal that where people will send us an email and say, oh, thank you so much. I got a visa. But then when we ask them to send the copy, they don't. <laughs> There's really only two ways that we know about the validity of the passport and can mention that list of over 185 countries, which also appears on our website, worldservice.org, mm -hmm. because uh, it's when they return their passport for renewal because the world passport can be renewed once. And right. we check through every passport to see if they're stamps and of course when there are we scan them and keep them in our archive or will passport holders on their own will email us or mail us a, a you know a scanner or a photocopy of the visa stamps that they get so the problem is we maybe hear back from three to five percent maximum of all world passport holder uh, applicants every year which mm -hmm. of course is a very small number so there's a lot of people out there using the world passport either locally on their day-to-day -day lives to open accounts to uh, get certain local benefits or to travel internationally but we don't always hear about it unfortunately it's it's uh, of course, with the internet and, and ease of uh, electronic communication, it's become easier, but it's still, you know, when things are going well, how, how sort of human nature, you don't necessarily reach out to the organization that, that helped you to, to, tell, to tell them that. So <laughs> I yeah. don't have, unfortunately, I don't have good statistics to really quantify that answer. So I heard on the news recently, there was a musician in um, South Africa that had used his American passport, I believe, for entry, and then his visa had expired for like after like I'm I'm not sure the curiosity. I'm sure you know about this case better than oh, I do. Oh, I, I know very well because I not only did were am I in contact with his lawyer, okay, uh, but we actually wrote uh, two different briefs, legal briefs, on his behalf. And the first brief was to the South African government to let them know that yes, on multiple occasions they've recognized the royal passport that it is. A valid and legal document, which mm -hmm. was a, actually a dramatic help in his case because they had to change the charges against him once they realized that they were initially incorrect. Right. Uh, that's the first brief. The second brief was to hopefully help him with uh, either travel to perhaps another country and even perhaps in an asylum kind of situation. Uh, in the end, um, the difficulties he had were really due to the fact of it was really a timing issue. Uh, he was trying to go to a gig in another country. He didn't have time to get the visa from the embassy of the country he was going to. And oftentimes with the world passport, and this is true for many national passports, if you don't get that visa stamp that says, you know, you can come here for business or tourism purposes or whatever, just like, you know, you might find when you're trying to travel through Asia as a Canadian, mm -hmm. um, it, it can be frustrating, and if there's a time issue, you just may not be able to get the visa. If he had gone to the airport with the visa in his world passport for that other country, I don't think we'd even be mentioning him right now. 
Right, right. In yeah. the mainstream media, though, I get a sense that they had indicated it as kind of like false documents, to, to, almost to the point where they're, they're saying like illegal or unrecognized documents. And, and I guess yeah. that's a misnomer in, in their interpretation of the story. But wh what are your thoughts about that? Because I think it damages the validity of, of the world passport if, if the media is discussing it in that manner. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm in the media, you're in the media, who, who isn't in the media anymore? And right. of course, we know that if something is sensational, that's what's going to get readership. Uh, so it is a, it's almost a business principle that you have to sort of sell your, your paper or your uh, radio show, your podcast, whatever it might be, mm. with, with something a little bit more interesting than just you know, the good story about how, how we're helping our fellow human, right? <laughs> so unfortunately, over the, the years, uh, I would say that media reporters get a hold of the idea that either because they've spoken to a government official who is not correct about it, who says, oh, that's false, and false meaning intentionally or knowingly untrue or untrue by mistake. It, it isn't. It's, it's a valid and legal document and, and wouldn't have this recognition by all these countries if it were a quote-unquote false document. But, you know, what I like to also quote here is, is what Gary Davis would say, and that is every document, in a sense, is a joke. Every document is really just a human construct. Mm -hmm. If um, you know, if tomorrow Google decided to buy um, America, it, it probably has enough money to do so. <laughs> it could buy it, and we would no longer be "quote unquote" Americans. We would be Googleians, and we would have a Google passport. So right. <laughs> it, it's just a human construct. So you could say every, you might say every passport is really false. But I would argue that the World Passport is the most, if you can say it, real passport because. It is a document that affirms everyone's human right to freedom of travel and to freedom of identification, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter how much money you have in your pocket, it doesn't matter. It's an affirmation of an innate and inalienable right, whereas the national password, on the other hand, is a divisive document. It separates you and me and everyone from each other by saying, well, you can't come in because you weren't born here, or you can't come in because you don't have enough money in your bank account. You know, that, that's what the national passport is doing. It's not affirming a right. It's actually only uh, affirming, if you can call it even affirming, a civic privilege. That is, uh, it's a privilege that can be granted or denied by a national government. A human right can't be granted or, or denied. It could be restricted, but a human right cannot be granted or denied because we're born with them. And that's what this world passport is showing to the world uh, a, a status that we can have as world citizens that would affirm our universal rights and not just simply uphold local civic privileges. I've heard of interpretations in which basically an immigration officer can almost distinguish or discriminate against your passport strictly by the color of the passport. For example, most of the navy blue ones could be considered like the Americas, and then you have the colors for Europe. And then you have a lot of the um, um, command economies, which look a particular color. Is Does this world passport, I guess, what you're trying to say that this world passport is probably should be considered at the very top of the pyramid as opposed to being considered at the very bottom of the pyramid. Although, because it's not getting the kind of recognition that many people or even immigration officers or visa officers don't really can understand or appreciate it to that extent. 
Well, the immigration's officer's job is to deny. It's sort of a yeah. demeaning position to be in. They have to say no to people, and if they don't, they'll probably lose their job in a few weeks. So they have to discriminate. That's their that's their role, sadly. Uh, we would say just think about how much money not in the war system even, but in the immigration or the embassy system and consular system, how much money is being wasted requiring people to uh, apply for visas and, and wait in line and, and go, go through all this uh, rigmarole just to say, yes, you can come and go when that's actually uh, has always been an innate and unalienable right, even if it has never really been fully recognized or, or respected. Um, so the border official, you're right, has pretty much arbitrary, subjective, and discriminatory power to do as they see fit. And, and we've been told by world passport holders that sometimes it, it could be just the, you know, they've unfortunately because of the color of their skin or their gender or their perceived religion that they've been discriminated against. And that's, that's really sad. So why encourage or, or why provide this as an option? For example, when I'm traveling around the world, I the Canadian passport is quite a reputable passport, so it I guess get a sense there's quite some ease. I guess it's recognizable. So I I don't want to stand in very long lines when I'm going through immigration. It's the most painful experience of of going in and out of an airport with in addition to the security checks. So why would someone kind of get into this dialogue with an immigration officer? by taking out their world passport because the guy might look at you very funny and ultimately it could cause a long conversation, keep you in the airport for, who knows, maybe 20, 30, 40 minutes. And sure. I'm sure that's the case for many different people. And for me, I just want to get in and out. And in right. an ideal world, I'd love to have those pieces of identification that allow me a, a seamless process. Right. Well, the world passport for some people who come from the, the developed world or overdeveloped world, you might even say, uh, like to get the world passport as a, either as a, a stand, not necessarily standalone, but stand along with document to their national passport. We tell people they are not mutually exclusive. You may carry both. In fact, sometimes that's the most effective way to use the world passport is to use it along with your national passport. And then once you get a few stamps in it, then it's going to gain much greater recognition and ease of use as long as you get those stamps in it from the beginning. But there's many people uh, from those first world countries, you might say, who like to have the world password as a backup to their national one because they're not, and the way they're traveling may not be for the, or, or in support of the particular national government or its ideology, but they may be traveling as a journalist or they may tra be traveling as a doctor or uh, somebody who's, who's doing some kind of work that is human related or world related and not, not related to a particular nation. And they, and not only that, but there's people who are afraid in traveling in certain parts of the world to be known strictly as a quote unquote American or, or, right. uh, you know, a Brit or something like that. And that for them, it's really important to have a backup document, whether it's the world passport or even another national government's passport. So we look at it as, as a tool in your toolbox of travel tools. You may not always use it all the time, but there are people, of course, completely separate from what I've just said, who are uh, human rights educators or human rights activists who enjoy the, the fact that they can educate the, the public, whether it's the immigration or uh, foreign ministry of a country in their travels or even before their travels about their human rights, because it, it humanizes 
the, the situation for a traveler when a border official understands, well, this is really what it's about. We have rights and, and we're not here uh, to harm anybody. We're here to, to, to love each other um, and to, to humanize that conversation, you might say. The World Password is, is one way to do that. Has there been any internal discussion about having a currency that coincides with this world citizenship? Sure. We've, uh, Gary Davis had a long time ago made a world refugee bill, and then more recently a world kilowatt bill, you know, kilowatt meaning you know, a, a measure of power, mm -hmm. and then most recently something called the mundo, which you could either be uh, uh, the word in, in um, Spanish or Esperanto for world, but mundo kind of like euro, euro meaning the, the, the bill for Europe, and, but mundo meaning the bill for the world, or if, I guess in English you'd call it the, the worldo. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> um, but so the idea, for example, of the kilowatt bill is to link um, human uh, work that is handiwork, you know, through our body or mind work, the two main forms of work, to an actual energy spent. If we can link money right now, as you know, money's not linked. At least the, certainly the dollar's not linked to any gold standard anymore. Mm. It's it's really a, a confidence game. But money really should be linked to something that uh, really does generate value, which, in, of course, energy does, whether it's sun energy, uh, wind energy, earth energy, or human body and mind energy. It would be great to link that to it. And um, there's an organization um, that is trying to link the global energy grids. And this, this is where it brings money, this kilowatt bill brings it back to world peace. If we link all continents around the world with energy uh, wires running under the oceans, uh, or through you know the skies or however we would decide to link them, then one part of the world would not want to bomb or destroy another part of the world because they would not get their electricity the next day. So it's a question of linking energy and, and peaceful human interaction together uh, in this, this idea of this kilowatt bill, which, of course, we've brought into the, the idea of the, of the mundo, which would be a world currency so that people couldn't bet against currencies and then make a lot of money and maybe uh, bankrupt a country and bankrupt a people. That's the, that was, we're trying to bring people to universal understanding and universal principles, and right. that's what, what this kilowatt bill or even the mundo could do. Interesting. Now, as you know, there's, there's quite an um, anti-globalist movement that is uh, spurring at the moment uh, globally. Now, obviously, your products and services are, are focused on kind of like world citizenship. I'm, I'm sure some people are going to have a misnomer of, of how this corresponds with things that are like related to new world order. Um, how is it, how is it different? Because if hypothetically, if, if what you were offering at, um, world service authority was utilized inappropriately, then it could be a, a tool that could be almost used for the purposes of new world order, which many people would actually kind of frown upon because they want to enjoy their individual sovereignty, even though the dialogue is about sovereignty. But as you've seen in many states that declare themselves as sovereign or declare themselves as republics, don't necessarily respect the rights of the individual. True. Well, we come at this idea of... Uh, world citizenship, not in a fashion of new, a new world order, but we would talk about the idea of order through law because we would say peace 
is a constant, not the absence of war, but the presence of law. Mm. And uh, so I can see for, for us, I mean, it's a question of governing at multiple levels. I mean, the subsidiarity principle is important for people to hear this, that we're not trying, we're not these, you know, conspiracy theory, wealthy bankers or uh, New World Order or the, uh, the Bilderbergs or, or the, uh, an the Antichrist or something that pe right. people might actually think. We're, we're none of that. We're a grassroots movement of individuals, individual human beings mm -hmm. who say we should come together as one ha human family, which is what we are biologically uh, through our DNA anyway, mm -hmm. but start governing ourselves in that fashion. Uh, certainly, you know, it would be horrible to have a situation where you have a dictator or totalitarian system. That would be the biggest vitiation of our rights. So we want to govern locally, and but we want to link it in, but only in cases where we need to globally, whether it's with the environment or other issues that are strictly global. But government has to be really on both levels. And, and for me, it's really a question of the idea of, of stopping killing. And, and maybe not much more than that, uh, because you know war is one of the biggest wasters of human resources and natural resources. Uh, right. we, we waste so many natural resources just to build those bomber planes and 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 all. So what we're saying is, if we can create a living re tools for for living rather than um, creating the the killing mechanisms, we can have um, a wonderful world. So it's it's a question of uh, coming together in that. In a, in a peaceful way, I guess you might say. David, what do you think about the idea that in order for World Service Authority to become to garner more credibility and awareness internationally, obviously it would need the contribution of many donors. And as I've seen in many other like foundations and nonprofit organizations, which have a positive message on the exterior, with the appropriate lobby group or donor, you that organization has the ability to implement or dictate various different agendas. And I don't know if you've ever been approached by potential donors that have agendas. I'd imagine that they could then start to exert some kind of influence um, that could be maybe at the detriment of World Service Authority, but also be very beneficial because it would then give you more resources to really expand and garner more international recognition. Well, so far, uh, and I, like I said, I've been there for 25 years. Gary Davis was there for 40 years before me right? Uh, as, as the people sort of heading the organization, uh, not counting all the other people working towards this goal. And we've never, ever had any kind of funding from any national government, from any corporation, from any major foundation. It's always been the global public, which I think is a great way to fund right. because the only people we ever have to accommodate is you. That is everybody, the global public. And, and that's the way it should be. A, a world governmental system must be of, by and for through the, the people of the world, whether it's uh, direct democracy, which I think would maybe kind of difficult, although a lot less difficult with technology nowadays, or more on the Republic side where, you know, there is still some form of representation of, of people. Uh, e either way, it's a question of, of coming to some kind of, of link that would prevent the kind of you're, like you're saying, control by a few or, or even one like wealthy donor. We would never right. want to see that happen. I know I don't. Right. 
uh, that would be scary. I mean, and certainly that does happen even within national governments. In fact, sometimes it's the, the leaders of those national governments who become so empowered and so wealthy that they can dictate. And that's not the kind of global governmental system that, that we would want. And, not, and I wouldn't even call that a global governmental system. I would, would call that more of a dictatorship. So certainly the effort is to install constitutional and legal processes that are participatory. That's, that's how I see it. David, let's end this conversation by discussing about um, refugees, for example, the ones that lack any identification and how you guys assist and facilitate them. Sure. Well, there are close to 75 million displaced people in the world when you add uh, asylees, refugees, internally and externally displaced people, some people not displaced because of persecution, but just simply because of environmental devastation of their land. Um, and then also stateless people. Like j just in uh, Myanmar, Burma alone, there's about a million Rohingya refugees who, even though they were born there and lived there their, their, their entire lives, don't have and can't, at least for now, get citizenship. So we, many of those people have found them, themselves in other parts of the world, like some of those Rohingya refugees who are in Paris, we've been documenting with World Passports. And we do have, because we're a charitable nonprofit organization, we do have uh, a service to provide free or freely issued documents to refugees, especially ones who are in refugee camps. But certainly there's, you know, there's so many millions of refugees, we cannot at this point, help them all. Neither can the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, even though it, it tries. And they're the, the main UN entity that's set out or set up to create uh, a system to help refugees. So it's really, we have to look at this world in a new and different way. If we want to, I mean, w one project that is that we're actually just starting, even though it's sort of been a, a, a an organizational project forever, but, is, but now we're really um, promoting that. And th that is to look at world citizenship as a valid and legal citizenship in addition to any other citizenship that you may or may not have. And, and the point of citizenship is that we have rights and duties, especially our rights we want to affirm. And if you're not a citizen, if you're stateless, um, then you don't, you don't have those rights generally met. Our government doesn't feel obligated to respect them. But if everyone has world citizenship as a, as a valid, even secondary status, then no matter where you are, if you lose your country because it's gone underwater, or if you have to flee your country because you're being you're shot at, by you know government forces, well then you still have another that backup world citizenship that you can exercise no matter where you find yourself, and that's a key project that we're working on now to help refugees. In addition to the the day to day processes of um, not only providing free documentation to refugees around the world, you know, very small number just because of our capacity, mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. we have legal a legal department that provides free legal advocacy to refugees. Uh, if they will contact us, we can write a legal brief to support their right to stay in a country if, if they found a safe haven or if they're looking for a safe haven to try to find a, a government or a country or, or some, even some other organization that might sponsor them to come to a different place. Thank you, David, for coming on to the Big Trade Series. Oh, this was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Peter. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.